we're starting, everybody knows I think that this is the next term in CBCBI. We may change the name of this thing to just CBI, it would be a lot simpler. Everybody's confused by CBCBI, I don't know why I find that so easy to say. But um, I'm passing around a new, a new attendance sheet. I have the two old ones from the last term up here. If anybody thinks you might not have filled in all of your attendance, feel free to come up here and grab these and fill in if there are slots that you should have checked that you didn't. I went through so far and we've got 28 folks who completed at least seven hours for last term and that's really great. I'm really pleased about that. Okay, we're going to be covering tonight, or we're going to be starting Theology 2, which will be the study of the doctrine of God, which is called Theology Proper, and then the doctrine of Christ, which is called Christology. In the second hour, we're going to be studying Systematic Theology 4, which is all about salvation, and that's called soteriology. Um, just making sure I haven't forgotten anything. Okay, so let's jump into theology two. This is going to start out rather philosophical. Some of you will be thinking of stuff that you may have gone over in college if you studied philosophy of uh, the, the philosophy of God or religious philosophy. We're going to look at God's existence, non-theistic worldviews, and the attributes of God. Now, there are five basic arguments that philosophers use to try to prove that God exists. They're interesting. I think they're utterly useless for trying to convince a skeptic that God exists, unless the Holy Spirit is working very hard on them. But I think they're useful as we think about God. Okay? There are two categories of arguments for the existence of God. One is the deductive category. That's where you start with general principles and move to a specific conclusion. And then there are the inductive arguments, which look at specific facts and try to draw from them a general conclusion. Most of the arguments for the existence of God are inductive. Now, we're just going to go through these quickly. The ontological argument. Anybody remember this word? You've seen this before, some of you? Any of you grow up in the Catholic Church, by the way? Okay, in the Catholic Church, they often study this stuff. Does that look familiar to you? All right. Here's the ontological argument. Every one of these arguments has three parts. They're all syllogisms. Okay, the first part. Man can conceive of a most perfect being. We figure there must be some most perfect being in the universe. A most perfect being who was lacking the quality of existence wouldn't be perfect. Therefore, there must be a most perfect being. It makes you laugh, doesn't it? It's kind of silly. It's the kind of thing where if you try to wrap your mind around this, you'll sprain it if you think about it late at night. You know? This is the kind of stuff that is, is kind of the stuff of nightmares. Okay? If you're really try to pursue this in your mind. I don't think this one is very convincing. Okay, next is the cosmological argument. That simply comes from the word cosmos, which means the world or the universe or everything that exists. This is an inductive argument. 
You start out with the premise, the world exists. That's hard to argue with, isn't it? Okay. Something cannot come from nothing. That seems to be self-evident, doesn't it? Therefore, a prime mover must exist. God is the prime mover. He's the one who made it all happen. Now, this argument is more compelling than the ontological argument, but it still leaves us with the need to recognize that there is one uncaused cause, and that is God himself. If you share this argument with somebody, they will say, but where did God come from? And the answer has to be, God didn't come from anywhere. And they will say, well, I think the universe caused itself. And you say, I think you think God caused itself. Who's right? I think there is an answer to that. The answer is that it's more economical to think that there is one uncaused cause than that the whole universe is an uncaused cause. But, again, it's not conclusive. All right. Now we come to the teleological argument. That comes from the Greek word telos, which means end or design. It has something to do with purpose. Okay? Here's how this one goes. The world evidences order, purpose, and harmony. You believe that? It certainly does. Intelligence must have supplied these. That makes sense, doesn't it? Therefore, a master designer must exist. What do you think about this one? You like it, don't you? I think it's a very compelling argument. Now, someone can turn this around and they say, yes, that means that aliens from space created everything. Okay? It proves something, but it doesn't prove everything. It proves that there must be some higher intelligence than us, but it doesn't necessarily prove who that intelligence is. Okay? But this argument is so compelling and so hard to argue with that Darwinism was invented to counter the argument. Right? What does Darwinism say? Darwinism says that random mutation plus natural selection results in the creation of ever more complex living systems without the intervention of intelligence. Now, Darwinism doesn't work. It's a corrupt theory that is not scientifically tenable. But a large part of the motivation for it was to deal with this very syllogism. Can you see it? Okay. Then we come to the anthropological argument. This has to do with the nature of man. All right? First premise, man exhibits personal qualities like conscious, conscience, intellect, emotions, and will. And you can't get personal qualities from impersonal forces. Therefore, there must be a personal creator. Now, you see how we're moving closer and closer to a picture of God that is like the picture of God in the Bible? At the beginning, there must be some self-existent being. Then there must be some intelligent being. Okay? Now we've got there must be a personal being. What do you think about this one? I like it. Okay? 
But again, it's got the same weakness as the cosmological argument. It doesn't tell you who the personal creator was. Okay? All right, now the last one is the moral argument. We have a sense of right and wrong, don't we? Now, somebody like Freud would say, no, you don't. You're not really born with that. It's taught to you by your culture, right? Margaret Mead would argue against this. She would say that human beings are blank slates that are taught that society's concept of right and wrong. But I don't think that's true. I think we're actually hardwired with some sense of right and wrong. I think there are innate standards of right and wrong, although they can be twisted in our thinking. Okay? Now again, you argue, argue that impersonal forces can't produce moral absolutes. Does a rock know what right and wrong are? Or a randomly generated chemical? doesn't make sense. Therefore, there must be an ultimate judge. Okay? I think this is a really compelling argument. Now, you put all these together and you notice some things. There seems to be a progress from arguing to mere, for mere existence to creative power, intelligence, personality, and then morality. And if you put all those together, it starts to sound like the God of the Bible, doesn't it? It doesn't tell you everything by any means, but you come up with sort of a theistic view of God that's very much like the view that the Bible presents us of God. Now, my personal view is that the primary value of these arguments is to strengthen the faith of believers. It helps us to see that our faith is a reasonable faith. Okay? We live in a world that's constantly telling us we're stupid for believing in God. You start thinking about these things and you start to realize you're stupid not to believe in God. You know, what does Scripture say? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The hypothesis that there's no God is actually foolishness. Okay? Now, we went through those really quickly. You don't need to remember them but I think they're kind of nice to have under your belt and at least be exposed to them. Now, got a piece of ice in my mouth, excuse me. Um, what we just looked at was a series of arguments that argue for a basic theistic understanding of God. Okay? Um, theism is the belief that there is a single, all-powerful, eternal creator God. But there are folks who don't believe that and they hold what we call non-theistic worldviews. Okay? Non-theists reject the theistic God idea in a number of ways and I think it's useful for the purposes of theology to be aware of the basic non-theistic worldviews. Is this too dry? Okay. Alright, good. Alright. Well, the first non-theistic worldview is atheism. Now, personally, I don't think there is any such thing as a true atheist. I think everybody knows that there is some kind of higher power than himself. But atheists at least claim to deny that. Now, there are three kinds of atheists. There are practical atheists who just live as if God doesn't exist. 
they're not particularly concerned about arguing against his existence. They just live as if God doesn't exist. There are dogmatic atheists, this is what I, this is what I used to be, who insist that God doesn't exist. And they will argue with you if you're a theist, and they'll say, where's God? You know? And I used to say this all the time. Can you taste him? Can you see him? Can you touch him? Can you smell him? Can you feel him? Can you hear him? I never have. Okay? That's, a, that's one way to be an atheist. And then, then there are virtual atheists who try to redefine God in different ways. You know, they would say that God is a sense of love in your heart or God is something else, but it's not the kind of God that we as theists believe that there is. Okay? So that's one of the non-theistic worldviews. Now, the second one is agnosticism. Agnostics don't deny that God might exist. They simply deny that there's any way to know that he exists. Okay? They say, I don't know whether there's a God. And generally, they live as if he didn't. They're not going to end up and say there is no God. They're just going to say, no way to know. Now, in my own experience, I moved from atheism to agnosticism before I moved to theism. Okay. Third view, which is very popular, evolutionism or scientific materialism. These are not exactly the same. Scientific materialism is the viewpoint that the only thing that exists is the physical world, and there's really no such thing as a spiritual component to the world. Everything that happens is chemical or electrical reactions. It's the motion of matter. Um, people who hold this view have a hard time explaining what thoughts and emotions are. <coughs> but they hold it. Remember B.F. Skinner, the behavioralist, who said, the only thing that matters is how you behave. It's what you do on the outside. Remember Clockwork Orange? Remember that movie? <laughs> how many of you remember that? In Clockwork Orange, there are these antisocial gangs, and these guys are imprisoned, and they're put in the hands of a behavioral psychologist who forces them to feel violently ill any time they consider doing a violent act. And he calls them cured. But in reality, inside them themselves, they want to be violent, they just can't pull it off until they figure out how to unprogram themselves and then they gleefully go back to a violent lifestyle. Okay? And the title of that, you ever wonder where the title comes from? It comes from <coughs> the idea that a human being who is doing what he is programmed to do is like a clockwork orange. An orange isn't, doesn't have gears and things in it. You open it up and it's a piece of fruit and you eat it. A clockwork orange is like that plastic fruit on, your, on the bowl in your table in your dining room, right? It looks real, but it's phony. And that's what that movie was saying. It was saying that someone whose behavior is controlled by programming, but who isn't expressing outwardly what he is inwardly is basically a robot. And the, the, the theme of that, or the, the, the idea that that movie was defending is that it's wrong to program people behaviorally. That didn't go much farther than that, okay? 
I don't think it was saying that it's good to be a thug. But it was an interesting movie. Okay. Now, most scientific materialists are also evolutionists. Because if you hold this view, you need to have some explanation for where the universe and where life come from that doesn't include God as part of the hypothesis. And they will usually go to Darwinism for at least a partial explanation of that. Okay? They deny the supernatural by seeking naturalistic explanations. Those who hold this view take the non-existence of God as an axiom. Okay? That's where they start. I refuse to believe in the existence of God, so where do I go from here? Now, this is very closely related to atheism, obviously. All right, the next one is deism. Deists believe that there is a creator God, that he started the universe, that he sort of wound it up and then let it run and step back, and he just watches it. He's not a moral judge watching over the actions of people. He's not intervening in blessing or judgment. He just sort of lets it go. Many of these people would call God an absentee landlord. You may have heard that phrase. Okay. Um, this is a view that was very popular in the 1700s. Thomas Jefferson who was a Unitarian, was basically a deist, or at least part of his philosophy was very deistic. You can see that if you hold this view, you can claim to believe in the God of the Bible, but you can also argue that it doesn't matter what I do because he's not watching and he's not going to do anything about it. Okay? Now, polytheists believe in a multiplicity of finite gods. They don't have one God who's in charge. They have Multiple, uh, you know, many, many. I mean, it could be hundreds, it could be thousands, it could be millions. Animists think that every living thing has a spirit in it that's kind of like a god. You know, the Eskimos will ask the forgiveness of a seal before they kill it. You know, that's a polytheistic idea. Um, Hinduism is a very polytheistic religion. Even dualism, okay? Think of uh, the yin-yang idea from Korea you know, and other parts of the Orient. The idea that the universe is controlled by the interaction of two forces, the dark force and the light, for light force, or the male and the female force. Some would call it the good and the bad. And those two things are always working back and forth. None of them ever quite gets quite gets the upper hand, but that explains how the world keeps going around. Even that is a polytheistic view because it says that there are at least two powers at work in the universe and there's no single god above it running the show. Okay? And we have pantheists. Okay? Pantheists Pantheists argue that everything that exists is God. Now, maybe that would be better with a small g. They either see the world itself as being spiritual, or they argue that the world in which we live and the world which we see, you know, which we feel and touch, isn't real. It's not really there. 
it's just an illusion. Okay? The, the, the Eastern idea that the world is a world of illusion and your goal is to reach nirvana, and nirvana is the place where you sort of lose a sense of your own identity and your consciousness sort of just melts into the rest of the universe and you are the chair you're sitting on and you are the breeze that's blowing around you and, you know, you've heard this stuff, right? The Matrix. Any, yeah, The Matrix, sure. Any of you ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? <laughs> no? You don't remember that book? That's old. That's from the early 70s. That was a very pantheistic book. Okay. Um, those who would argue that the perceptible world is just an illusion often hold that everything is really just one. You know, there's no distinction between me and you. We're just all parts of the same thing. And that idea is called bonism. Okay. <clears throat> These kinds of views are very popular today. We're living at a time in history when there is a renaissance of interest in the spiritual aspects of the world. Unfortunately, that renaissance is not a move back to biblical theism. You know, it's the stuff that started with the Beatles in the 1960s. That was a spiritual awakening. And it led us, it led the Western world into, particularly down here, into some really wacko things. Okay? What these worldviews are great for is excuses for not recognizing the authority of the real God. But they don't do you much good beyond that, right? How, how, how is any of these going to give you guidance for life? They just don't, okay? The best they'll do down here, polytheism and pantheism, is give you a rationale for thinking that you can control the world by pushing and pulling certain levers. You know, using tarot cards, um, you know, feng shui, um, all these kind of crazy spiritual methods of manipulating the world, um, voodoo, you know, you go on and on and on. There are lots of these philosophies out there. I don't think they really work, although sometimes I think they're used by Satan and his demons to enslave people. But the bottom line on these things is that they're, they're often used as excuses for refusing to recognize the authority of God. David, yeah? I, I may not be remembering this correctly, but you and I were talking one time, and, and didn't you say that you don't think there's truly an atheist that exists? Yeah, well, I said that earlier tonight. You? Yeah. I was asleep. I don't, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I don't think there are any real atheists in the sense that Romans 1 says that everybody knows there is a God. We all know that there's a universe around us. We all know that somebody had to create it. You know, and, and, and I think up here especially, these are basically excuses for, or, or defenses for our refusal to recognize what we really know, which is that there is a creator God. Is that how you felt? Yeah, yeah, I would argue that. Uh, you know, 
long before I came to faith in Christ, I claimed to be an atheist, but when I got in trouble on a couple of occasions, I found myself praying, and I couldn't explain it, you know. Becca. So, so now that you're a theist, yes. and how would you argue with an atheist who gave you the same argument you gave others? Um, I wouldn't argue with them. I wouldn't. I would, <clears throat> I would sort of move the argument in another direction, okay? Deal with more personal issues, you know? Because um, I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can fight these things head on. But most people in their time of need, who try to use those things as defenses, will let those defenses down. And, and above all, the most important thing is to be praying for these people, that the Lord will sit, let them see the, the bankruptcy and uselessness of the philosophy that they're hiding behind. Okay? I, I think that's the best way to go about it. Okay. Did you have a question, Clay? No. Okay. All right. How do we know God? We've already talked about this. By the way, as we go through these courses, at times we're going to do things we've already talked about because that's the nature of theology. There are all kinds of links. So you cover the same territory sometimes. What are the two sources of revelation about God? Okay, general and special revelation. What are those? What's general revelation? Somebody else. Okay, what's, what, what is general revelation? You be quiet. Bob. <laughs> What's general revelation? You folks in the back row. Exactly. The universe around us is general revelation. It's what we see. Okay, special revelation. What's that? It's the Bible. Okay? Those are the two sources of information that we have. Okay? Now, we're going to move now into a discussion of the attributes of God. Okay? Our knowledge of the attributes of God, how we know God, is in many ways best organized by giving descriptions of the nature of God, and we call those descriptions his attributes. Okay? Now here's a defi definition. God's attributes are those characteristics of his divine nature that distinguish him from the creation and which describe and reveal his true nature. Now, you can't go in the Bible and find a complete list of the attributes of God. This is something you have to dig for, but there's lots of evidence there. Okay? There are a number of different ways of classifying the attributes of God. I think that the best one is to break them down into two categories which we call his incommunicable attributes. And this doesn't mean you can't express them. It doesn't mean you can't communicate them. And his communicable attributes. Okay? The communicable attributes are God's attributes which he shares with his creatures in some sense. Things that are true about God 
that are also true to some degree about those who bear his image, and that is us, okay? The incommunicable attributes are the things that are true about God, and they're only true about him. They're not true about anybody else, okay? You see the two categories? All right, let's, let's look at a listing of the attributes of God. And let's start with the incommunicable ones. These are the ones that are uniquely about God and not about anybody else. Okay? God is self-existent. <clears throat> Don't try to wrap your mind around that. You will sprain it. Okay? <clears throat> when did God come into existence? He didn't. Who created him? Nobody. It's not even right to say he created himself because that's nonsense. Remember in the yellow submarine, the vacuum creature who stuck his vacuum around and sucked up his tail and disappeared? You remember that? You don't remember that? You didn't see the movie? Okay. Well, I used to like to try to think about God like that vacuum creature except working backwards. Okay, but that doesn't make any sense. All right? God did not create himself. Okay? He was not created by anybody. He has always existed. And that's all you can say. Okay? You know, you, you push back you push back the chain of causes and you say, Where did life come from? Well, if you want to say evolution, you could say that. And where did the world on which the life evolved came from? Well, eventually you've got to get back to the hypothesis that there's a creator who created something. Now, you may have some different view than the scripture teaches of how that something came to be in the form in which it is now. But you have to get back to the idea that there was some uncaused cause, right? Either the universe is its own uncaused cause or something created the universe and that thing is an uncaused cause. And God is the most economical hypothesis for an uncaused cause. And there's just nowhere to go beyond that, okay? And it's not nonsense, okay? Believe it or not, to say anything else is nonsense. Now, there were people who tried to argue that there was an infinite sequence of causes and it never stopped. Well, that's even worse, right? You can't make sense of that. God has always existed. Nothing created him. So, that's his quality of self-existence. Now, the second incommunicable attribute of God is his immutability. Anybody know what that means? He can't change, okay? Now, don't misunderstand this. This does not mean that in God's interaction with his creation, he doesn't have a history, okay? If you want to say, well, there was a time when the second person of the Trinity wasn't incarnate 
And then there was a time when he was incarnate and therefore God changed. You have missed the meaning of this. Okay? God's immutability has to do with the unchanging nature of God, not with the lack of his ability to act or to participate in cause and effect and planning and execution in history, right? God does interact with his creation. In fact, theism is based on that very idea. It's deism that would say that he doesn't. Okay, next incommunicable attribute, the infinity of God, the unbounded nature of God, right? Are, are any of us infinite? No, you sort of feel like you're becoming infinite after Christmas season passes, but, you know, not really, okay? God is infinite in his perfection, okay? That has to do with the lack of flaws in his nature. He's infinite in his eternity. There I'm using this word as an adjective or his eternality, okay? This has to do with his quality. This has to do with his relationship to time. And immensity has to do with his relationship to space, okay? It's kind of interesting. Those of you who study physics know that time and space kind of go together. You know, if you, well, let's not go into that. But, <laughs> but yeah, Einstein's theory fits in here, okay? We are not infinitely perfect. We are not infinitely extensive in time, and we're obviously not infinitely extensive in space. Those are things that are unique to God. Question? Okay. All right. And finally, there is the unity of God. Now, this gets a little tricky, and if I don't explain it well, you'll have to excuse me, okay? There is the unitas singularitatis, and there is the unitas simplicitatis, okay? Those are Latin. The unitas singularitatis means that God is one. Okay? The unitas simplicitatis, or simplicitatis, however you pronounce it, means that God doesn't have parts. Okay? You can't carve God up into parts and then reassemble him and then have God. And this one, I think, is important because as we look at all these attributes... The idea is not that God is the sum of the, these attributes. The idea that we should be thinking of is that this list of attributes allows us in our finite thinking to get a handle on what God is like. But all of them go together and they're not separable and it's not like God was assembled from all these qualities and you put them together and you've got God. There are probably a number of things about God that we have no idea of that aren't reflected in this list. Okay? All right. Now, communicable attributes. This one is interesting because this has to do with us as human beings, as bearers of the image of God. Okay? Everything that's true of God in here is true of us to a certain extent. Okay? God is a spiritual being. He's more than physical. In fact, he's not physical at all. We're spiritual beings, right? 
Okay, God has intellectual attributes. He has knowledge, which has to do with facts. He has wisdom, which has to do with knowing what to do. And he has veracity, which means that what he says is always true. Okay? God has moral attributes. He's good. He's holy. He's righteous. Okay? I think goodness has to do with what you do for others to serve them. Holiness has to do with being set apart. It has to do with not being touched by sin. Righteousness has to do with judging others. Okay? As well as God's own actions. God is sovereign. Okay? He has a sovereign will, which means that he makes plans. There are things that he wants to do. And God has sovereign power, which means he executes those plans. Okay? Now, just think about yourself. You, as a bearer of the image of God, have all of these qualities, or at least potentially have them. Okay? Now, we will never have sovereign will like God's sovereign will. Okay, our will is always subject to his will. But we do have will, don't we? And we do all have a certain amount of power. We are all spiritual. We all have certain knowledge. We have a certain amount of wisdom. Sometimes what we say is true. We're all capable, by the work of the Holy Spirit, of doing things that are good. As we grow in godliness, we become more holy. As we grow in godliness, hopefully we become more righteous. So these things that are attributes of God are also things that when we, when we bear his image without corruption in that image, we'll be very much like him. Okay? And think about the Lord Jesus. He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Okay? I think he was primarily talking about these things. Because these things aren't visible. Okay? Any questions? Observations? Bob? Could we add the tangible ones to creativeness? Hmm. I would probably put that down under here, but it would be helpful to put it there. Okay? And, and I think I know where you're going. When, when we think about the way that we bear the image of God, and, well, We'll, prob we'll get to this in the next hour, so I guess I won't jump into that. But, but Bob, what you're saying is important. Um, <clears throat> this is the way Burkhoff would list the, the characteristics. To put that one down here under sovereign power, I think, would be very helpful. Good observation. So wouldn't create be something that, you, that comes from, from nothing? Well, okay. God, yeah. We don't have that kind of power. Okay. God has the power to create, we call it ex nihilo. That's the Latin term for it. God can create from nothing. We can't create from nothing, but we can create from something. You know, you give me but a stack of wood. Do have a different word for creation? Like Genesis 1 um, says that it's Yeah, it's, it's the Hebrew word bara which usually describes creation from nothing. Yeah, I, I, 
don't push this too far, okay? The idea of communicability doesn't mean that we have these qualities in exactly the same way that God does. But what we'll see in the next hour is that one of the ways in which we bear God's image is that we do the things that God does. And I'll just give you a sneak preview. We create. He creates from nothing. We create from what he has created. Okay? We relate. We build relationships, just like God does. And we dominate. Okay? God rules the universe, and he created us to be his stewards to rule the earth. So in those limited senses, we do the things that God does. Okay? But we don't do them in exactly the same way he does. But the very idea that we bear his image does require that there be some link between these communicable attributes in God and them in us. Okay? Now, this is a miracle. It's 7.30, and we got through the material. Okay? So let's take a break, and let's start at about quarter to eight.